Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 20 and 21 in Romans chapter 5. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you noticed as we read the text this morning that we are going to move on in our text in just a minute. But I want to go back to verse, if you will, 19 for just a minute before we totally leave those verses that we spent four weeks in. I hope this week that the reality of what Paul's main point in those verses that we spent four weeks looking at, that you heard it this week, that that you heard it last week, and you continue to hear it the rest of your walk with Christ, because it is so important. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, by the disobedience of Adam, we were made sinners. Now, we sinned after that, but we weren't sinners because of that. We were sinners, first of all, because we sinned in Adam. That is incredibly important to get. We sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. All mankind sinned. But then the flip side of that, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There's a direct parallel. That's why you've got to get the first to get the second. We made that point again and again and again. And I hope that you see it, that you today, if you have put the full weight of your hope in Christ, are seen by God as righteous. The end of last week, I read a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones to drive that home. And even as I read it, my pastoral heart agonized. It agonized more on Sunday afternoon and Monday. I got a call this week and again realized that my agony was not for no reason. I should agonize a bit about that quote. It's not that it's not true. It is true. What what I'm going to read again to you is true, but it's not all of the truth. And that's what is hard sometimes when you stand in the pulpit. You, You give truth, but you don't give all the truth because you couldn't. You don't have enough time to be here to get all of the truth. And so sometimes you leave thinking, I left a loose end there. I would have tied that up. It's a little bit what Paul did in this text that took four weeks, is he starts out to make a point, and then he diverts twice. Remember the two parentheses? It's because he's thinking about what people are thinking and begins to address questions that he thinks people might have as he walks along. And so let me, let me read that quote to you again here this morning. And this is the question that Lloyd-Jones left with us. He says, I leave the question with you. Have you followed the argument? Have you really seen yourself in Christ? Do not simply look at yourself. Look at yourself in him, because that is where you are. You have been put there. You have been engrafted. 
You are in him, and therefore you are constituted a righteous person. That is how God looks at you if you put your hope in Christ. God no longer looks at you as a sinner and as you were in Adam. That is the whole point of the gospel, and you must never look at yourself as a sinner again. That's the part that caused me to have pause. But he explains it here. He says, you are not a sinner. You are a child of God as God sees you. You are a child who fails and who falls, but you are not a sinner any longer. You are not a miserable sinner. For a Christian to call himself a miserable sinner is to deny the entire argument. He's a miserable, he was a miserable sinner, but he now is a righteous person. And when he fails and falls, he does so in the realm of family, in the realm of love. But thank God that he does not change his position. His standing is not changed. The relationship to God is not changed. Look at yourself, always exclusively and entirely in Christ, even as before it was all entirely and exclusively in Adam. And that's really the the difference. We're in one of two camps. We made that point plain. We're either in Adam today, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you're in Adam, sinner is a, is a just label that God sees you as. If you're in Christ, he sees you as righteous because you're in Christ, just as you were once in Adam. goes on, do you feel as I feel? I thank God that he ever, by the Spirit, led the Apostle Paul to emphasize this point about Adam and Christ, and also the point that we are all were sinners because of Adam's sin. It drives and enables me to look on the other side and say, I am righteous. And this is, this is a key. This is the part that you want to get as you leave here. I am righteous in God's eyes if you're in Christ. In spite of all that I know to be true of myself, that's where the issue comes in, doesn't it? Despite all I know that is true of myself, and what I know is true of myself, that I still sin. And so in one way, I am still a sinner, but not as God looks at me. I'm no longer a sinner. I've been constituted a righteous person. You see why I left a bit unsettled as I left last week? I don't want anybody to go out of here and think that we don't need to confess sin. We don't need to acknowledge sin. We do sin, even as Christians. In fact, this morning, I think the best way, it was prayed, that really what we are is simultaneously just and sinner if we're in Christ. We are just, we are righteous in his eyes, and yet we still sin at times. All of us do. You won't be free of that until you're fully glorified. Now, we don't take it lightly. We're going to come to that a little later. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, God forbid. That's not the attitude we should have. But we need to acknowledge that we do. We do, but it doesn't change our standing with God. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ, one or the other, and you don't flip back and forth in those relationships. That's incredibly important. Here's why it's important. I I said to you, I stopped last week, if you remember, and I said young people, but really all people, listen. You need to understand this or you you will struggle as you walk with God in the Christian life. You will struggle. 
You will struggle because you, you will look inside. What I did for, for those early years of my life is I looked inside to find assurance, and inside I saw some things that weren't very nice and very pretty at times in my life. And, and uh, the weeks that I could do a little better were okay, but then you know how that goes. And, and it, it was a dead-end street to look inside for my righteousness. It was a dead-end street. I had to look outside for it. And I hope that what we've done here has helped you to see Paul is driving home assurance in, this, in these verses, in these chapters. And the assurance comes from the work of another. Is that where you rest, in the work of another on your behalf, that you're in Christ and seen by God as righteous? But writer of the Hebrews says, we've been made perfect forever righteousness of Christ, by the work of Christ, by that single sacrifice never to be repeated again. We've been made perfect forever, even as we are being, one translation says being made perfect or being sanctified, even as we are being made perfect. That's the view of the Christian life. We are made perfect forever, and in fact, the reason it is so important to understand this is because it will not cause you to take sin lighter as you understand it. It will actually help you to battle sin more effectively if you know that. If you know that you've been made perfect forever, that you are righteous, then you're willing to open up your life and let God really do his work inside of you. You're not afraid of it. It's not going to condemn you anymore. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to call it something else. You can acknowledge it. You can acknowledge that there is still a part of me that God needs to continue to perfect and continue to sanctify inside of me, change, move from one degree of glory to another, if you will, as the scripture says, that God wants to work in us, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And the foundation for us letting him do that is to be sure of where your hope rests. What is the foundation of your hope? And it is in the work of Christ. It goes back again to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, one man's obedience, not this man, Christ, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. I hope, I hope that truth is clearer to you from these days. Now today... We're going to continue to look at chapter 5. In fact, for a couple more weeks, we're going to look at chapter 5. There's a temptation now as you come to the end of that point to just kind of say, we'll just skip over the last couple of verses. I think that would be a mistake. I think we would miss something incredibly significant here. And what we would miss is a, another contrast that Paul brings out. Another contrast, as he did in those parentheses and through that text that we were in, he brings out this contrast, the reign of sin versus the reign of grace. The reign of sin over us if we're in Adam versus the reign of grace over us as we are in Christ. The, the, the combination, the contrast of those two things, that's what these verses begin to show us. They're also important verses because they help us to introduce chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7 talk about that reign of grace. But this is where he introduces it. Now, to be honest with you, 
I had a temptation to just make it one message. In other words, jump to the reign of grace because I'm excited to get there next week. I'm excited to talk about the reign of grace. The reign of grace in our lives as as Christians. In fact, next week, the emphasis of what I'm going to talk about is that's the most wonderful gift a father can give to his children is to allow the reign of grace over his life and let it filter down upon his offspring. It's a wonderful way to talk about fathers and fatherhood. But we're not going there yet. We, we have to stay one more week before we get there. And the reason that's important, again, goes back to pastoral kinds of concerns. You're not going to understand that. You're not going to understand the reign of grace until you fully understand the reign of sin. Paul knew that. He, he wanted to make sure that was plain. And so what he does, his pastoral heart, as he's writing, it's a letter, you know, there weren't chapter divisions, but as he's writing this letter, he again thinks about his, his Jewish brothers in Christ at Rome. And he thinks about how they struggle with the place of the law in their life. What place does the law have in their life? Again, it, it might have been a question to ask him, but probably just because Paul knew his people so well, knew the people he was writing to, knew the concerns, he just knew this was a question that was out there. And so he begins to deal with the issue of the law. Look what he says in verse 20. Again, it's kind of a parenthesis, but I think he knew he couldn't put three parentheses in between his main thoughts, so he waited to the end. It's kind of an epilogue at the end. And he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. We're going to get there next week, but we first need to understand what he means by now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? The law came in. What he really is going to teach and talking about here is the place of the law. The place of the law, which is incredibly important for us to understand. It was important for the Jewish brothers to understand. The, the, the law was so central. We can't fully appreciate that, I think, as Gentiles. But the law was so central to their life before they'd come to Christ. And to try to sort that out, and many of the problems in the early church with the Jewish people was, where does the law come in? Because they'd already had a couple of things that Paul had told them here. He first of all told them the law cannot save. The law can't save you. So believing Jews had had to swallow that pill. They'd had to understand that, have that understanding in order to be a believer. Because if they still thought the law was going to save them, then Christ couldn't save them. You know that, don't you? If, you? if you are trusting in your ability to keep the law, then you're not trusting in Christ to save you. And sometimes there's a mix of both. Sometimes even a believer can get those mixed up. But, but the Jews, first of all, had accepted that the law can't save us. Paul said it in chapter 3, in verse 19. If you go back to that text, it says that... Uh, um, Actually, verse 20 of chapter 3 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul drove that home, and, and they'd accepted that. Okay, check mark. We accept the law can't save us. But then Paul goes on to say something else about the law that we already talked about. 
The law can't and doesn't even necessarily come to condemn us. It it doesn't, first of all, come to condemn us. He, He made that point. We're, first of all, condemned where? Not by the law, but by the sin of Adam. We were condemned when Adam sinned, we sinned, condemnation came to us. So the law, in one sense, doesn't even condemn them. Which, again, was not an easy pill to swallow, but they swallowed it. It says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So sin was already there. The sin of Adam that we all had imputed to us. So sin was already condemning them, their sin, and it didn't need the law to do that. Because of one man's disobedience, they were condemned. The sin of Adam that we all participated in. So, can you see the progression? They accept the law. Can't save me. Keeping it won't do it. In fact, the law doesn't even condemn me in the first part. So, what? Why a law? Why did God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? Why did it come? It it seems to have no purpose. That must have been some of the things that the Jews were thinking and asking, and Paul perceived it. And so he goes on to say to them this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? The law came in to increase the trespass. The trespass. That's what Paul says. That's the purpose of the law, to increase the trespass. So is God guilty of causing people to sin? If it increases the trespass, he brought the law, so him bringing the law then increases the trespass, which makes God complicit in more sin? Well, we we don't want to go there. James chapter 1 helps us not to go there. Listen, listen to what it says in, in the book of James chapter 1, just clearly so that we don't make that mistake. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God... We can't, we can't have that interpretation of what he meant when he said, now the law came that the, to increase the trespass. What, what literally the text means is that the law came alongside sin. It came alongside sin that it might magnify it, that it might help us to show it for what it really is. And that's what the purpose of the law was, to show sin for what it really is for us. Uh, I think that's what it means in verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words, it it came alongside sin to magnify it, to, to make it burst forth for us to see it. And so there's several things I think that we can say about it. Let me say those quickly here and, uh, and then draw things to a close. In what ways has it increased sin? 
It increases the knowledge of sin for us. The law increases the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, it says in chapter 3 and verse 20. Through the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It defines it for us. It sharpens it for us. It shows the depths of it to us. It shows the grip that it has on us. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, if you turn over to verse 8, he says this about the law. Yet it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Yet had it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The purpose of the law was to make it clear, to make it clear that we sin and are sinners. It just sharpened it. It magnified it. It brought it forth. Secondly, the law increased our conviction of sin. It, it increases our conviction as we, as we see it for what it is, we, we begin to understand what it is better. An illustration of that, I think, would be David. Remember David in Psalm 51, his psalm of confession. David committed adultery, and to cover up the adultery, committed murder. And certainly, he sinned against both Bathsheba and her husband. But why does he say this? Why does he say, against you and you only have I sinned? And done what is evil in your sight. Because he knew he did it ultimately against God. And what, what the law shows us and teaches us that ultimately our sin is against God. It's against him. We commit, if you will, cosmic treason against the holy God of the universe. The holy sovereign God of the universe. It convicts us. And then thirdly, it, it actually incites sin within us. It stirs up sin within us. The, the law has that effect as it comes alongside our sin. And sin, it stirs up sin. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. Um, this would be an illustration of it. Um, years ago, there was an evangelist, a pretty well-known evangelist that many of you maybe don't even know the name. I'm not going to share the name, but I remember hearing him on radio and on television and print, and he, w- he was just the, the perfect description of hellfire and brimstone preacher. I mean, he, he came at that, but he came at it with the law. I mean, he hammered the law. He hammered the, the fact that people were uh, needing to keep the law. And, and what, what ultimately came out, it, it wasn't a grace-filled message at all. That doesn't mean, grace doesn't mean we don't talk about sin. But he talked about sin in, in distorted kinds of ways, in ways that I think um, were wrong. And then the remedy for that was wrong, um, of, of doing these things and doing certain things to free yourself from it rather than running to Christ. And ultimately what happened is that man fell hard. He fell from grace. He fell. And um, some horrid things began to come out about what had been going on all the time. He had been preaching that message. What happened? 
I'll never forget, I was, I was young in the Christian life, I'm never, I'll never forget somebody saying what happened was that, that he, he had exactly the effect that happens when you live under the law. It stirs up sin. It, when you try to live under the law, it actually will stir it up. If you try to look to the law for your righteousness, which is, I think, what this man did and what he tried to encourage other people to do, it will actually cause sin to increase. It won't help you to battle it. That's what I meant earlier by I said, an understanding that you are righteous in Christ will help you to actually fight sin better and effectively rather than do it by attempting to kind of morally clean your life up. That's a dead-end street. And that's what he preached. That's what he talked about. That was a message. It wasn't a message that lifted up Christ, but it was a message that said, work harder, do more. And it stirred up sin. It stirred up sin in his own life. And, and again, it was a, a lesson for me. It would help me greatly to understand what sin can do and what the law can do if you get it wrong. The fourth thing that I think it does is that it helps us to understand Sin reigns over us. The law coming alongside sin helps us to realize that sin reigns over us. And that's exactly the description if we're an Adam. It's a description of all men at one time, that sin reigns over the unbeliever. It, it reigned over me at a time in my life. Next week we're going to talk about grace reigning. And, and that change happened for me, and it's happened for the multitude of you here. That grace reigns, but at one time, sin reigned. And the law shows us that sin reigned. It's the description that we find in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes these words, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now in the work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us lived under the reign of sin and the law comes to help us to see that, to see that all men lived under that. There's one sense which all of us should understand. Um, we hear somebody once in a while verbalize it, and it's good to hear it verbalized. You've been in situations where somebody did something, and it, it, it just seemed, it kind of took away your breath. They did something. They acted in a way. They responded in a way. They did something. And you also know that person is not a believer. You're not making judgment upon them. They just don't profess Christ. They don't follow Christ. And the truth of the matter is, when that happens, it should not surprise us. It should not surprise us when that stuff happens. There shouldn't be a shock to us, a surprise that certain things happen. Because sin reigns over unbelievers. We, we should, in one sense, expect them to act that way. It's only the common grace of God that restrains it sometimes. But in reality, sin reigns over all of us. At one time, we're under either the reign of sin or the reign of grace. And then finally, the ultimate purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ. 
the ultimate purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster, as the book of Galatians says, to bring us to Christ. The law was never meant to be a way to save yourself. And if you try to do it, what I've just said, it will stir up sin. It will make more sin. If you try to save yourself by keeping the law, it will stir up more sin in your life. That's just the way it works. Why? Because God will not allow you to be saved by the law. He won't let you go down that road until more sin is stirred up so that what? So that we will see the foolishness of that and look to Christ. It is really grace, in, in a sense, working there to get us to look to Christ. The law was always there to come alongside the sin that we had in Adam to show us, to graciously show us our need of Christ. Well, next week, we're going to talk about the reign of grace. But the true reality and the reason that you can't just skip over these two verses is one, you'll miss, a, you'll miss the beauty of the reign of grace, the reign of God's grace over us. But the second idea is you won't even realize how much of a contrast there is between the two. If you don't really understand sin, the reign of sin you won't see the beauty of the reign of grace. Next week, I look forward to being able to talk about that with you, to share about the reign of grace, to help us over the next weeks as we go into chapter 6 and chapter 7, some into chapter 8, we see that reign of grace, the reign of God's grace over a life. This morning, again, the contrast is there. Just as we are either in Adam or we are in Christ, we are either sinner or we are seen as righteous by God. We also are either under the reign of sin or we are under the reign of grace. My hope this morning is that you are understanding the bountiful blessing of being under the reign of grace. And if you're not, if you're not, that you will look to Christ. Look to him. Look away from yourself. Look away from any sense in which you can somehow save yourself. That's a dead-end street. And look to Christ. There's a song that talks about the depth of God's mercy, which is whetting our appetite for next week but it also talks about the part we've talked about today that seeing our sin then makes us ready to see the bounty of grace let's stand and sing it as we close this morning depth of mercy can there be mercy reaching even me? God the just, his wrath forbears me the chief of sinners spares. So many times my heart has strayed 
from his kind and perfect ways, making clear my desperate need for his blood poured out for me. grace, Lord, let me own all the wrongs that I have done. Let me now my sins deplore, look to you and sin no more. Therefore me the same stands holding forth his wounded hands scars which ever cry for me once condemned but now set Savior stands holding forth his wounded hands scars which ever cry for me once condemned but now set free